I tried to start a podcast and it turns out it's really hard to start a podcast. Yeah. Well, that's why you hire Mandy. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. Hello, and welcome to episode 273 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm your host today, Sam Livingston Gray, and uh, today the panel is just me, and we have a special guest, Orin Shaw. Hello. Hey, so uh, you haven't been on the show before, so do you want to uh, give an introduction and tell us uh, a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. I'm Orin Shaw, as previously mentioned. I founded my own company doing this DevOps thing that you may have heard of about a year ago, and now I do the DevOps thing, which I've discovered is mostly talking to people instead of, you know, writing code or anything. Um, I've been a software developer for the last 12 years, and I am an accomplished landscape photographer who's just in the last stages of publishing her next book. Very cool. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I always thought that uh, DevOps was pronounced DevOps, but I guess today I have been corrected. It's pronounced HugOps because your ops people desperately need more hugs. <laughs> Wonderful. I like it even more now. So yeah, I uh, I really wanted to get you on the show uh, because of this uh, blog post that you wrote a while back called Contempt Culture. And uh, by way of introducing it, um, I'd actually like to tell a little story uh, about uh, something that happened to me about 10 years ago. I was uh, taking a class in extreme programming from Jim Shore, who's uh, an agile person who's uh, here in Portland, Oregon. And uh, he made this this comment that wasn't really part of the XP um, curriculum or anything, but it really stuck with me. He said that the first response of any developer when they sit down to work with code that they didn't write is to throw up their hands and go, this is crap, I can't work with this. And when he said that, it really, it really struck me because I saw myself in that comment and I realized first off that if this was a universal thing that it sort of validated my own experience, but then in validating it, it also made me feel really bad about it because I realized that I was not coming to other people's code from a place of empathy and understanding. And, uh, that really has informed ever since then it's informed the way that i approach my code and reading your your post uh was another one of those moments where i realized that i've been doing something that i wasn't really thinking about but that is once i'm called out on it i realize is actively harmful and so that really meant a lot to me i like having those moments and uh so yeah i wanted to bring you on and see what you uh what you had to say do you want to try and summarize your blog post to start Sure. So um, my post on contempt culture, like, and your example is really great with the developers coming into a new code base and saying, this is garbage, I can't work with this. I have done that. I have done exactly that every time I've come into a project. I can think of within the last four years, the number of times I have done that. And it makes me feel bad. Just like it, it sounds like it made you feel bad. And so contempt culture is uh, kind of this idea that 
Our communities are founded on the idea of presenting contemptuousness to things that are outside of our community. Um, so I initially learned programming on Perl. And at the time, there was a very strong bias against PHP in a lot of online literature that I was referring to while learning this language. And the result of that was I had internalized that we should um, hate on PHP because it is, uh, quote unquote, objectively bad. And <laughs> right. that's really harmful to people who write PHP. And the people who write PHP are generally people from backgrounds that are not like mine. Um, where mine is, I grew up in a household with computers. My dad was a was a programmer, so I had access to all of this knowledge and all of these things that most people don't have access to, whereas PHP is generally more associated with design backgrounds, um, doing WordPress, doing, uh, doing simple websites. Right. Um, so contempt culture is uh, talking about how we do that in our communities, and that is how we buy uh, both status and uh, community respect. And well, the, another thing that I took away from that was that it's how we pay for our ongoing participation in in the cultures that we are in. Right. We're demonstrating our in-group participation, like we are right. a part of the group. And if we stop doing it, we are signaling that we are no longer wanting to be a part of the group. We no longer believe that we belong. And other people will react appropriately, like, oh, you're not promoting this idea that the people outside of our group are bad. Um, therefore, maybe we don't like you anymore. Maybe you're not welcome anymore. So it's kind of a self-reinforcing cultural aspect of the things that we do. Yeah. The way that you phrase that, it almost makes it sound like if you if you stop participating in this bashing, uh, bashing down of other cultures, it's like you're going to be found out or ostracized for, you know, not being tough enough or something. Is that is that a fair way of putting it? It really is. And you can see that kind of behavior really prevalently in something like the Linux kernel mailing list, which is <laughs> a highly contemptuous space, as as you possibly know. Oh, yes. Um, and this feeds into imposter syndrome, where if I'm not expressing that I'm good, and by being good, I am expressing that through, oh, I know the right language. I know what languages are bad. Therefore, I have knowledge. This creates imposter syndrome because you have to internalize these things and then feel bad that maybe you don't understand why, quote unquote, PHP is bad. But by creating that culture that makes it okay to bash PHP, you don't really have to think about it as long as you just participate, right? Exactly. And as soon as um, somebody says, hey, that's not cool, um, the response is very defensive because in a lot of these cases, as you mentioned, um, you haven't thought about it. It's just part of the community. It's just normal. And that normalization of it is um, really kind of the entire point of calling it contempt culture. A culture is what you do, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so you can say, oh, our culture is inclusive and supportive, but you can say whatever you like. Culture is what you do. So we do this thing. We don't think about doing this thing. And the moment you're called on it, you have to think about what have I chosen to do? And that moment of what have I chosen to do means that all of a sudden you're reprojecting yourself as am I a good person? And you sound mm -hmm. like you've been through that moment a couple of times. I definitely went through that moment uh, about four years ago when I got called on the PHP thing the first time and suddenly had to reframe my entire world. And that was hard. Yeah, that cognitive dissonance can be an incredible load to even contemplate, let alone shoulder and work through. It really is. And I think that's why I'm quite lucky in that I didn't see a lot of pushback on the contempt culture post. Um, I got mostly positive responses. And the some negative responses I did see were oriented around, but PHP is objectively bad, end quote. 
um, which I have an entire thing about why that is bullshit that, <laughs> that I actually want to go through at some stage. And I can go through here if you'd like. Well, sure. I mean, so there's a there was a blog post out there a while ago titled PHP is a fractal of bad design, which I personally really enjoy because it's a fun little sort of teardown in deconstructing different aspects of language design. But even baked into the title, right, it's a, a fractal of bad design. It's there. There's a judgment. Um, and this whole phrasing of PHP being, quote, objectively bad is I find really quite laughable because there, first off, there is no true objectivity. There's no place you can stand and criticize a thing that does not carry its own bias and its own values and doesn't encode those into your argument. But yeah, like even throwing that aside, there's a fantastic lack of empathy in, in uh, making arguments like that, that, that really, like you say, devalues the work of so many people. It really is. So as part of starting my DevOps company recently, I kind of, again, had to reframe myself that I should be supporting everything and PHP and uh, Node and Python and Ruby. They're all roughly similar in terms of how you set them up. You're supposed to run them. Like it's a web server and a database and a Linux machine. Right. Like this is all identical. Um, so I attended a local Drupal meetup and wow, those people are great. They are accepting and open and empathetic. And they're just like, Hey, how can we help you? Look at this cool thing I did. It was wonderful. But yeah. what really stuck with me was that as a DevOps person, I'm aware of tools like Chef and, um, Puppet and Salt and all of these things. And all of the people there didn't really know how to use them. That's fine. But even the people concerned with deploying things didn't know how to use them. Again, that's fine. They're difficult to use tools. Right. But they're reinventing the same tooling. And then I looked at that and I was like, okay, why are you doing that? And I dug into that. And I've kind of come to a set of realizations that I mentioned about where this idea that PHP is objectively bad, A, comes from, and B, how it's self-reinforcing. So what okay. I noticed is that, say, going back to when I learned programming, so this would be uh, late, late 90s, early 2000s, and the Perl community dumped on PHP, and there's so much internet articles about how PHP is bad. Okay, but at the same time, the like C community was very similar dumping on Perl, like, oh, that's not real programming. <laughs> right. No, you real programming this... starts with, with uh, getting s sand from the beach and making your own chips. Yep, and uh, inscribing your... Uh, oh, how does it go? Real programmers use a magnetized needle and a steady hand. <laughs> there you go. So if you look at it, though, the contempt culture goes back a very long way. And I have some other thoughts um, that I would like to share as well. But in summary, the contempt culture goes back very far. And when the web came out, um, initially, it was for tech people. And then the web was discovered by, quote unquote, normal people. And people right. then who didn't have a programming or tech background were able to get into doing this cool new tech thing. So it suddenly became, oh, HTML is not real programming. And then mm -hmm. Perl started to become the thing that you use to make CGI scripts. And then Perl became, yeah, but that's not real programming, that's scripting. And then PHP comes out. And PHP is much simpler than Perl in a lot of ways in the early days. And PHP gets that same, but PHP is not real programming like we Perl developers do. So, okay, fine. We're all kind of assembling ourselves into an hierarchy. But the secondary effect of that is when you enter a community that has an underlying contempt culture and you say, I'm working with this thing and I'm having this problem, you're not going to get useful responses. You're going to get, why are you using that? 
which makes you feel bad and then right. you leave. You are, you are bad and you should feel bad because you chose a thing that is bad. Exactly. But you're still trying to solve your problem. And if everyone who's working with a given tool is getting that kind of feedback from the underlying contempt culture in the tech space, what you end up with is they still need to, you know, share and talk and have help. So they find each other right. and they share things like code with each other. So what you ended up with is things like Perl and or not Perl, but PHP, the community formed around PHP and didn't have access to like, quote unquote, good programming knowledge from the tech community, which means that tech community people could immediately point at that and say, look, they're all terrible programmers. PHP must be bad. And that became a self-fulfilled prophecy. They said PHP was bad and they threw people out, which made PHP bad. Yeah. Uh, you said something earlier about people reinventing their own tools for doing uh, DevOps. That reminded me of, of something else that I've seen happen. I first noticed it when I came to Ruby, which is that there's this tendency to take a tool that that's great in some other language and rewrite it in the language that you prefer because it's easier for you to think in those terms and to work with those tools because you've already got them installed. Um, and I think Rake for me is really the canonical example of this. Of course, it's been around for decades. Uh, and Rake was envisioned as, you know, at first as a way of doing things that were like Make, but with a better syntax and with access to the full power of Ruby. Like that always seemed to me to be sufficient to explain some of the desire to reinvent tools. But um, I like what you're saying about uh, how contempt culture is sort of driving that from the other side and, and excluding people from access to the information that maybe they need to do their jobs more effectively. Yeah, that's exactly it. And like people keep rewriting the tools, which is fine. Like it's a great way to learn the language. Yeah, it's totally. a great way to, yeah. Or to learn what that uh, tool does. Yeah, exactly. Because Make made a bunch of decisions and it's been around for two decades. So those decisions have been kind of like polished well. If you're like, ugh, but I don't like Make because all of these reasons. And then you try to reimplement it. All of a sudden you learn why those uh, decisions were made. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this is why writing toy languages is great. You're like, oh, I hate this thing that they do in that language. And then you write your own. And you're like, oh, that's why. And then you are sad because computers. <laughs> Pretty much. And if you're lucky, you didn't get enough uh, computer science education to have the idea that you can't do that. Uh, and then you actually get to discover all of those things for yourself. Which actually, like, I never went to university. I don't have a classical computer science education. Yeah. Uh, but I did end up writing my own toy language from lexing or parsing strings and lexing by hand. So I didn't cool. use any of the existing tools like Yak. I just did it all by hand. And that was possibly the best thing I ever did in learning to program. Right. It teaches you some wonderful things. It does, like lookup tables and scoping and how do loops work and how should I build a state tree? And now I can apply, you know, finite state machines to basically everything. <laughs> totally. Okay, so that's all really cool and interesting. Um, but as somebody who is maybe first confronting or grappling with this idea that uh, we're participating in this, in this culture that, as we've talked about, is excluding people and thus is actively causing harm, we talked about the cognitive dissonance that that brings. Like, it brings you into conflict with this idea that you're a good person or a good programmer. And I think a lot of the things, uh, one of the things that people go to from that right away is... But I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to cause that harm. Uh, and you talk about this in your blog post a little bit as well. You want to go into that? 
Yeah. So um, in the blog post, I reference another blog article called Intent is Magic. And the core argument that that makes is that intent isn't magic, that you didn't intend to do that thing doesn't actually matter. Um, Someone else was harmed and their feelings are valid on that. And that you didn't intend to cause that harm. Well, great. I don't intend when I insult people unintentionally, but I still did it. And that actually is really hard to accept that okay, I did the thing, but I can't like say, oh, I didn't intend to do that thing. Right. Therefore, I can't get out of it. Like I have to own that I did the thing. And that becomes super hard because that is the challenge to, am I a good person? Am I a good programmer? How have I harmed these people? Now I have to own that. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, the, the thing that I like to bring up to help people through that is this idea that if, you know, if I step on your foot, it doesn't matter whether I meant to or whether I was looking the other way or trying to catch a ball or something, the fact remains that I stepped on your foot and your foot now hurts. I mean, we can talk a little bit about, you know, did I mean to, but that's kind of, I, I want to call it kindergarten morality. Really, what you have to do at that <laughs> point, <a> great <laughs> what you have to do is address the actual injury and figure out how to keep from doing it again. But that starts by having the fortitude to acknowledge the harm that you actually caused. Right. And I think that's important. I don't think by having caused the harm that you were a bad person. I think that refusing to own that you have caused the harm makes you or pushes you into the space of maybe you're a bad person and you should look at what you're doing. But if you can admit that, yes, I stepped on your foot and yes, I hurt you. I may not have intended to do that, but I did that thing. I'm going to apologize and try not to do that in the future. That's great, actually. Like, that's the goal. Absolutely. It's not the mistakes that you make. It's it's how you handle uh, handle them and uh, try to at least make different mistakes in the future. Right. Like we're all human. We will all continue to make mistakes. We all make assumptions all the time. And when we discover that those assumptions are flawed, then it's hard. And acknowledging them and apologizing for them is the only thing we can reasonably do. At the same time, the moment you're called on it, you get super defensive. So if you get called on stuff, disengage. Calm down, approach it a little more rationally once you're out of your emotions. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot. It's a hard one. You feel threatened. Like your worldview is threatened. Your ability to look at yourself as though you're not the bad guy is threatened. And that's really, really emotional. And a lot of people like to think they're not emotional or they're not emotional in that way. And these are very emotional responses and they're very, you know, valid responses. But You still need to process those. And the best way to do that is to disengage and actually process those. (laughs) Right. Doing it live and doubling down, that does not end well. Trust me, I know. I've seen it happen. I've done it. Oh, it does not end well. Yeah, no, it's like live coding. It it can be done, but the odds are against you. (laughs) Very much so. Um, Very, very much so. So yeah, um, I think contempt culture really drives that idea that I didn't intend it because you've done all of these things that were normalized by the underpinning culture. Mm -hmm. You never thought about them. So being confronted with, oh, I've done the thing. Well, my culture said it was okay. We all do this. But if it's wrong, then I didn't intend to. I was just this part of this bigger thing. And even if you were part of a bigger thing that is normalizing that thing, you're still not unaccountable. You still have to own that. And that's the hard part. Yeah. And depending on your culture and your community, this whole train of thought may wind up with you 
leaving the community that you were part of and that you got a lot out of, depending on how that culture reacts to your change of heart. Yeah, exactly. And we saw that very prominently with Sarah Sharp and Matthew Garrett leaving the Linux kernel community because it is so toxic and so wrapped up in this. And this kind of segues into some thinking I've been doing a lot on this lately and a talk I just gave at uh, WDCNZ last Thursday about how, um, like, why contempt culture forms. Ooh, and interesting. What, yeah, I've, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, um, before we do that, can I call out one thing that I see in uh, in Ruby culture? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So uh, before we jump to that, there is one thing that I wanted to call out uh, in Ruby culture specifically, in which is that we sometimes uh, talk smack about PHP as well. Um, not as much, uh, I think, as perhaps some other communities do, but it is still there. One other thing that I've noticed, though, is that there's a variant that seems more benevolent than it perhaps actually is, which is this idea that, oh, those people over there who are using PHP, they're so unfortunate. We have to go help them and save them from that and bring them into Ruby so that they can experience you know, the, the higher plane that is you know, writing Ruby code. I think that's that's sort of noble, and it's I do recognize the desire to help people, but it does come from that same you know fundamental perspective that my tool is better than your tool. It really does. It is founded in the exact same contempt of other tools. If you're saying, "Oh, we have to help these people because they are so downtrodden with these poor tools," because that's what you're saying, then you are being just as contemptuous as someone who says, "Ew, why are you using PHP?" Because you are literally saying, "Ew, why are you using PHP?" Right. Oh, you poor dear. You poor dear. Let us help you. Let us bring you into this glorious light that is Ruby and away from your dark and (laughs) foul peasant tools. And like, that's super arrogant. That is super harmful. And these people are doing amazing things with the tools they have. Yeah. And every time someone starts um, bashing PHP around me, I A, ask them not to, and B, say, Facebook's written in PHP. Right. Biggest website on the planet written in PHP, you can shut up now. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for indulging me on that. Uh, you were you were about to say that you've had some more thoughts on this and you gave a talk recently. Yeah, so I gave a talk at WDCNZ called Human Driven Development. And the recording should go online sometime. Uh, it's not online yet because it was just last Thursday. Um, so the thoughts I've been having are about why contempt culture forms, like what it grows out of. And a lot of the ideas I'm having... And this kind of really segues into what DevOps is doing in terms of uh, cultural disruption is like the idea of contempt culture grows out of the idea that developers are dominion oriented. So we're all about demonstrating mastery, demonstrating power. And we see this in our language with things like wizard um, from the early days and magic and modern stuff like ninja and rockstar and 10x (laughs) engineer. Right. These are words to say that we are better. We are better than you. It's to create a class hierarchy. And the reason we do this is because computers give us power. And for myself, anyway, um, when I was young, getting into computers was a way to claim power over my life in a way that like the rest of the world didn't let me have. I played a lot of video games like Civ and SimCity and such. And a lot of people kind of about my age have a similar story. And a lot of younger people as well. But predominantly, I can usually only talk about people around my age. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the classic nerd origin story, right? Yeah, exactly. So we get into this because we we need to feel power because our lives kind of suck in the outside. And we do. And we stay. 
And the early days was a very academic sort of culture, which kind of has an inbuilt sort of ivory tower aspect to it. We were taught to look up to these amazing people who had built like Unix or the C language or whatever. And they called themselves wizards. And the word wizard has this connotation of eliteness, of mastery over this ineffable magic that normal people don't get to have. So we internalize that idea. Right. And we say, okay, we're part of that amazing, magical specialness. We have power. And from power springs dominion, springs this idea that I have mastery over my world. And those other people do not have mastery over their world. And that, I think, is the foundation of, of contempt culture. Because once you've established that you have power and that you are better, it is very easy to go, you do not have power, therefore you are worse. Therefore, I can treat you however I want. And then our culture jumps into contempt. We then prove that we are knowledgeable and masterful through displaying our contempt for people outside of our culture. And you can see this in language like losers, which dates back to um, 1979, I think, uh, at MIT, where people would break into the library computers and change the login prompt from username to loser name. That's L-U-S-E-R? Yeah, L-U-S-E-R. Right. Basically to demonstrate contempt of people who are not in computer science. And that's how far back this dates. That's older than I am. Well, as you were describing that pattern, I, I found myself thinking that it uh, it fairly well captures a lot of the uh, practices and, and culture that got encoded into nobility and uh, our old class structures going back a couple hundred years quite handily. It really does. We're replicating um, an entire system of operation, and it's not super great that we're doing this. But a lot of us didn't have power, and being able to have power is really addictive. It is. And, you know, I think just as I'm sitting here thinking about it now, I, it occurs to me that perhaps the the fundamental disconnect there is the step between I have power and therefore I am good. Does that resonate with you? That's a really good point. Idea of goodness that springs from having power. And on the one hand, the kind of like noblesse, I'm going to mangle this pronunciation, noblesse obligé, I think it is. Sounds right. Like the obligations of the nobility. And some people have internalized that. And it kind of comes across in that whole, oh, we need to save the poor PHP devs from themselves. (laughs) Right. And it comes across in the other way of being an actual nobility and seeing those peasants as so much less than you because they can't do computing like you can. But it's really easy to go, but I'm good because I can. I like that idea. I'm going to have to explore that. Hmm, Okay. I mean, going even further than that, I feel like this whole self-concept of people being good or bad is itself not very useful. I think there's, in most cases, I feel like they're just people and people who do things. And those things have some effects that are positive and some that are negative. And hopefully they're more the former than the latter. But I, I don't really buy into this idea of like, I am a good person. Right. Um, like, I agree with that completely. Like, People aren't good or bad. They are people and they do actions and they have underlying beliefs and assumptions that drive those actions. Um, we aren't bad people. We aren't good people. We all kind of internalize a narrative which paints us as a good person. Well, sure. Which is normal. We, we do that. Um, but yeah, people aren't black or white. They're like weird shades of gray. And as time goes on, you change how gray you are. So... I think that the kind of contempt culture underpinnings do paint a black and white world, 
it's us who has knowledge and power and them who don't. I think it reinforces that in a very profound way. And it prevents us from looking at other people in terms of what they can do, what they can contribute, what their knowledge and skills are. Yeah. So we and we see that through um, through things like uh, developer contempt of design backgrounds in the phrase that you may have heard. And I have heard quite a few times of we'll get a designer at the end to make it pretty. Whack it with well, the we pretty stick is one that I've heard. Yes. Yeah. With the pretty stick. And if you go back to DHH, I think it was DHH uh, in 2003 or so where he was talking about design is how it works. And like this kind of the foundation of rails is design is how it works. Apple talks about this where design is fundamental to yeah. the entire process. It isn't a good thing unless you really talk about how it works. And so this level of contempt that developers have for design and the design process is strange and very much founded in that idea of contempt. You also see it towards or developers towards support or ops personnel. They don't mm. write code. Therefore, they're not elite like I am. Right. Whereas the way I see it is they know how to make those machines do things that I have no idea what that is, but I'm really glad that they have to deal with it and not me. And so that's great. <laughs> exactly. And we can't even see it in like the handover process where, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you the code and you have to support it, but you weren't involved in the process of making it. Therefore, right. if it breaks, you have to come ask me. You have to come supplicate yourself to me and hope I deem to give you the right knowledge. But it's still your butt on the line at three in the morning. Right. Um, which segues brilliantly into this whole DevOps thing and like the disruption of culture that that entails. Yeah. Yeah. So please run with that. Cool. So DevOps, is, as I see it, is a reframing of our underpinning culture from uh, this Dominion world to a more of a service-based world where all of a sudden as a developer, you can't develop in isolation. You can't treat your thing as this pristine box that you give to ops and let them put on a server and run. You have to involve them from the beginning, and you have to talk with them about how they're going to support it. You have to build tooling to help them support it as part of a first-order aspect of development. And if you're doing that from a position of, I know more than you because I can code and you can't, you're not going to have a good or positive interaction with your ops people. You're still going to have that level of siloing and that level of underpinning of contempt where the organization dysfunctions, right? And yeah. that organizational dysfunction leads into an environment that a lot of people have encountered where either devs win and ship things, whatever, and ops hates them, or ops wins and you can't ever change the system because they won't let you. They say no to everything. Right. Um, so I think DevOps as a whole is seeing a reframing of that culture towards you have to be empathetic. You have to include them in your process because otherwise nothing's going to work. And you have to treat the whole thing as like a holistic design. So as a DevOps person, I spend most of my time talking. I spend most of my time building bridges and fostering empathy and saying, okay, at three in the morning, how are they going to fix the thing? Can they just spin up a new one? I don't know. But, Do you know? But, but, but Oren, I just want to write code. Don't bother me with all this people stuff. You can't just write code, right? Code isn't for you. It's for other people. Without users, you have nothing. You don't have a job. You don't have a livelihood. Without approaching computing and programming from the position of, I have to give this to other people, you are not a programmer. You are sitting at home alone writing code for yourself. Yeah. And that's all you'll ever be. Yeah. And I, I got into programming, I think, partly because 
I did enjoy that that idea of sitting there and solving puzzles, but really the the main emotional motivation that I got was realizing that I could use those skills, which I had previously, you know, used for a summer's worth of entertainment, to actually help people and make their their jobs better. Right. Like my the very first things I was doing for programming were contracting work. It was doing things to solve other people's problems. And if I'd approached that from the idea of I'm better than you, then they wouldn't have given me money. They wouldn't have come back to say, hey, could you do more things for us? They would have said, well, that was fun. Now we have to get somebody who actually will listen to us to do the thing. And I kind of see this reflected in Silicon Valley culture of scratch your own itch or make a thing without really exploring who would use it. I see this very strongly in open source culture where the, um, or not open source, free software culture, uh, keeping those separate is important, where people scratch their own itch, which is great. They're writing software for themselves, but then they release it. And the idea that someone else might want it or use it is almost foreign, almost um, considered like anathema to the process, which I really just don't understand, which is coming awfully close to me kind of like saying nasty things about Linux. So I'm going to stop there. So do you want to go into the distinction that you just made between open source and free software, at least just a little bit? Um, yeah. So free software is kind of like the original version, um, which is the entirety of like the GPL and uh, descending from uh, Richard Solman's initial work about ensuring um, those initial like uh, consumer rights around you should have the source code and you should be free to modify it and you should be free to redistribute it. And people you would redistribute it to should also acquire those rights. Uh, and this is like the foundation of uh, uh, GNU and the Linux kernel and things like that. Right, which, which to horribly over-paraphrase, my understanding is that it was basically Richard Stallman was upset that he couldn't do something with a printer and then created this whole tool set around uh, making it so that you should so that you could do absolutely anything that you wanted with hardware that you had. Is that a, a fair summation? Yeah, that's exactly it. The printer they received didn't have driver or didn't come with documentation for them to write a driver and didn't have a source code for them to use the driver. So they right. couldn't actually do the things they needed with it. So they were like, table flip, fixing this. And then that became <laughs> uh, GNU. So, yeah, okay. So that sounds like even though it uh, its effect is somewhat altruistic, it sounds like that was motivated entirely by a need to do a thing that RMS wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So open source culture kind of grew on top of that. Um, I believe the term derives from Eric Raymond in one of his early blog posts about mm -hmm. this, possibly the cathedral in the bazaar. I don't know. But open source is notably different, A, in that it's applied to more things than just source code, and B, in that it doesn't carry the same sort of idea of um, self-perpetuating software availability or source code availability, sort of. Like the source code is there. You still have access to looking at it. But you may not have access to modify it in terms of licensing. You may not have access to, excuse me, change it. You may not have access to redistribute it. Um, and those are like fundamental things. How do I change this for me? How do I change this to make it more usable by my users? These are questions that open source doesn't always let you answer. Um, and I really kind of like dislike the way open source is being kind of absorbed by other things. Like it was specifically to talk about source code and whether or not it's open but now open source is being used to describe like events or cultural artifacts or other things along those lines where it's really not the appropriate term, but I don't really like, I'm kind of rambling at that point. So I don't really <laughs> have enough. structured thoughts there. Okay. So. Well, thank you for at least uh, explaining the distinction that you made. 
it is an important distinction. As you say, initially free software was about scratching itches. And a lot of the more modern developer culture is very open source based, not free software based. And we see this quite strongly in licensing that is predominantly based around the MIT or BSD license, which is very Mm -hmm. free in terms of you can take this thing and you can bake it into a commercial product and you don't have to release the source code with it. You can just give it out as you see fit or you can compile it and not give people your changes, which free software is intended to prevent. Right. I know uh, back when I was first becoming aware of of, uh, the free software movement, there was a lot of noise made about the sort of sticky aspect of the GPL, which is that anything that you release under the GPL, other people are free to modify, but those modifications are also GPL'd. Yep. As soon as you release it, other people get to have it Yeah. as well. So you see people like Matthew Garrett going around uh, issuing, I believe he DMCA's um, companies out of China who use Linux because he's got copyright on the Linux kernel because he's made contributions. He's a copyright contributor. So he goes around and set, and, G, and marks them for GPL violations, which I think is great because it forces them to release their changes. Interesting. Okay, so uh, I, I can see how that open source movement uh, was certainly fueled by the desire for companies to be able to make profits. Um, but what are the cultural implications or ramifications of that? So there's a bunch of cultural ramifications around open source. One is that it strongly levels the availability of knowledge. Like, I can look up anything. I have Stack Overflow, which is covered in source code. I don't know the licensing of it, so I I can't copy it, but I can use it for reference on how to do a thing. So it levels the availability of things to a huge extent. I now have access to build a website on top of Rails, for instance, or Django, or... Sinatra, like 10 years ago, I didn't have, oh, 10 years ago, we had Rails. But 15 years ago, when I was starting out, I had to build my own of all of these things. I had to learn how to parse uh, HDV. I had to learn how to deal with CGI headers. Um, I had to figure out how to do image uploading on my own. Now people can just say, here's a library. I'm done. That was easy. Um, So we have that much greater amount of leveling. We have cultures now, especially around Ruby and Node, which is, if I've written a gem, or a module, I publish it because then other, it can help other people. So we have Ruby gems being huge. We have the NPM being huge, full of useful tooling that helps me solve problems. And 15 years ago, I had that in Perl with, I forget what it's called, CPAN. Right. But that was very limited to Perl. Now it's much more available in terms of the culture. The culture supports doing that thing. But it has a really hostile edge, which is that there's now this expectation as an engineer that you should be publishing code. You should be contributing to open source. You should be doing things in the public. And by that, I mean outside of your normal day job, right? which is a huge amount of time load to put on people. Definitely. And companies will say, oh, give us your GitHub so we can see how you code. Well, if I am time poor because I'm bootstrapping myself to use a horrifying term and, you know, ask me about it later, bootstrapping (laughs) is a terrible idea. But if I'm trying to pull myself out of like a menial job that is exhausting, I don't have much energy to write a lot of code. So I'm not going to have a lot of code on my GitHub page. I might have a lot of knowledge, but I won't have a lot of code. So if you're judging me by my GitHub page, I don't look like a great coder or Uh, especially for women having to take care of their family. Mm -hmm. You get home from work and now you've got to make dinner or now you've got to take care of your kids or now you have to take care of an elderly person. 
Um, These are things that predominantly fall on women. So while it's great that it's leveled things, it's leveled things in favor of white men because they're the people who generally have the time to access and participate in the culture. And the secondary thing of why this culture is hostile and toxic is that, well, toxic may not be the right word, is that it promotes that we should all give our labor away for free. (laughs) Namely that the open SSL thing is a great example of this. There is, there was up until Heartbleed, one maintainer of SSL, of open SSL, which is a fundamental piece of the internet infrastructure at this stage. One person kind of doing it in their spare time on the verge of bankruptcy most of the time. But Facebook's using this thing. Google's using this thing. Twitter uses this thing. Literally everything on the internet uses this thing. No one was paying for it, which fine. That's what free software and open source is supposed to do. But the culture of it, the culture of convincing devs that they need to participate and convincing devs that they Um, should give their work away for free means that companies feel entitled to take that work for free and not contribute back. Right. Which means that we are perpetuating a culture where OpenSSL having a single developer is fine, even though it's fundamental to the internet, even though now they have enough people to run for another, I think, year and a half before they run out of money. So there was a small contribution but it's not being continued. It's just enough to get good PR until it all blows over. (laughs) And then what? And then this fundamental piece of infrastructure drops back into, oh, well, it should be a labor of love. It should be passionate. But no, that's not acceptable. Yeah. And I think there was an entire episode uh, some time ago on on the Ruby Rogues where uh, Avdi essentially ranted for an hour or so on on this whole concept of passion. So I'll, I'll find a link to that one and put it in the show notes for anybody who's curious. It was it was well worth it. But yeah. Yeah, it'd be really interesting hearing that. And then the whole passion narrative being, you know, garbage. There's a whole lot in there. This is a rich theme to mine. Right, exactly. So for our listeners, that was episode 144, and I'll put a link in the show notes. All right, well, clearly we're both passionate about deconstructing the idea of passion, um, and that would be a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, maybe we should bring it back around to contempt culture and possibly uh, what some of our alternatives might be. Right, so... One of the things I talked about in my talk last week and touched on a little bit earlier is what I think DevOps is doing in terms of disrupting our culture. And that is um, moving us away from this kind of dominion orientation where we think we're better towards a service-oriented culture, service culture, where it's not, what do I know? It's, how can I help you? And it's a fundamental reframing of how we're approaching programming. It's uh, user-centric. What am I doing to benefit you? Oh, yeah. Not in a term of, oh, I know more than you, therefore I should do the thing for you. But in terms of, I don't know what you do. I don't know anything about what you do. I should sit with you. I should watch what you do and try to help you make that better. Yeah. And this is predominantly because we can't ask people what they want um, because they don't know. I don't know what I want, but if you watched what I do for a day or a week, you would get a clear picture of the things I do and the places where I'm clearly bumping into issues and could use help. And if we move away from I know everything as our cultural background to I don't know anything, but I still want to help you, how do I do that? I think that's what service culture looks like. Wow, that's a really powerful and I want to say dangerous idea because this this framing everything in terms of like, how can I help you? 
it's such a transformative question. And I think it maybe even goes beyond, you know, dev or ops and DevOps to almost sort of fundamentally getting at one of the things that draws a lot of people, certainly myself, uh, into programming, which is the idea that you can make tools that help people. But if you start from the perspective of how can I help you, you might get to a point in a particular conversation where you realize that the answer is not software. It's telling them to go and talk to somebody else down the hall. <laughs> exactly. Um, so many problems that we think of are as technical problems are actually social problems or they're um, communication problems. And throwing technology at that problem won't help. Like It might make us feel better because we're exercising our knowledge and proving our mastery, but it's not actually solving the problem. And let's not forget earning our paychecks. And earning our paychecks. But if we're not helping users, why do we deserve a paycheck? And a lot of this thinking um, has been coming out of, I've been doing more research on uh, UX and talking to UX, and that's user experience um, experts. And a lot of this stuff is um, like based on the ideas of design thinking and iteratively going over what they need through watching what they do, the entire idea of user experience is user focus, right? It's the idea that I'm doing this for you, not from a position of, say, we need to help those poor PHP devs by bringing them to Ruby, but from a position of, I have the knowledge and skills to make your life better through the knowledge that I have, but I'm not doing this in a masterful, noblesse oblige way. I'm doing this from a position of, I genuinely care about you. I genuinely care about what your problems are. And you can't approach that from the position of, I know more than you. I think at best you can qualify it by saying, I know some tricks that you don't, and let's see if they can help. Exactly. Um, For instance, uh, I work in a co-working space, and um, somebody I know here uh, is a a videographer, and she has a bunch of video files that she needed to rename, I think over 100 of them. And she was going to sit there and do them all by hand, and she was like, this sucks. And she came over and asked me if there's a better way. And I did like an eight line Python program to <laughs> read in the file names and just move the files. And it takes like half a second to do it. It takes me five minutes to write that program. And like the program is not repeatable. Um, I would have to modify it for her for that. But now she knows that A, this can be done. Right. And B, I'm approachable because C, I care about her problem and not making myself feel better or make myself feel bigger, like I know more than her, because I don't. She knows so much stuff that I don't know about this other entirely different field. And so that's what I see as service culture. How am I helping? How am I making her world better? Not through this idea that I'm, I'm showing off my knowledge, but through I have this knowledge. How can I make that knowledge work for you? I don't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> um, so I think DevOps is really fundamentally pushing that as an ideology and kind of doing it in a uh, kind of hidden way because we have to ask of our ops people what would make your life better what do you do okay they deploy things they um, restart services they monitor things they worry about uptime okay we watch what they do and then we build tools to do that better yeah And we get their participation. We're not saying, oh, I've watched you. Therefore, I am a programmer and I know everything because I can solve problems. We just watch them and we build those tools and we work with them and iterate them. And that's user experience. That's service culture. And given the uh, amount of uptake of Amazon and Heroku and these tools that make it really easy to do that opsy stuff, it pushes our devs into the idea that quick and easy deployments are normal and that that's the world we should be working towards. 
which in turn lets you go and do some other more amazing things that we could not have dreamed of 10 years ago. Exactly. 10 years ago, I was pushing code to a server and hoping that it worked because one of the things I keep saying is that my developer environment is tainted. Like it's broken yeah. by default because I install things in it <laughs> all the time and you it. don't even give a record of what it is. Totally. Exactly. And once I found out about Vagrant, I think five years ago, four years ago, I was mind blown because this let me rebuild my, my dev environment dynamically. I didn't have to worry about, oh, did I break it? How did I break it? What did I forget to include in the, in the requirements text? I'm just like, nope, right. here's the thing. All the scripts, you need to rebuild it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 10 years yeah. ago, I did not have that. And I wish I did because it would have made so many things about my life so much easier. Oh, you yeah. could have just tested things and then deployed them. Or I was going to say 10 years ago uh, on my first, probably my first two or maybe even three Rails apps, I uh, I started out literally uh, SSHing into the server and doing a git pull and manually restarting my four or five server processes. And that was, I mean, Capistrano came out right around that time, but it came out uh, after I had started on these projects and I was like, ah, I don't have the time to try and figure that out. And just looking back from there, I just can't even imagine working that way anymore. No, it's, I mean, people do still work that way. Um, I was giving a, a boot camp session for the local Summer of Tech um, initiative, which is uh, about getting uh, industry professionals in front of uh, early university students to kind of bring them up to speed on what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're talking about doing that, logging into servers by hand, doing things by hand which is totally a valid and necessary part of the learning experience. Yeah, you but, you don't really appreciate what the tools are doing for you until you've done it the hard way. <laughs> exactly. And you need to break your things before you understand how to fix them, which is also great. But at the same time, I'm blowing their minds by saying, yeah, we don't do that anymore. We, we write tools to do that for us because it's so much easier. Yeah. So yeah, I, see, I really see DevOps as pushing this world where we have to integrate ourselves. And as a DevOps person, I see my entire job as user experience. I provide a better experience for devs in terms of they need to deploy code, they need to ship, they need to make milestones. And having to deal with the deploy that goes wrong, having to deal with, oh, God, we did a bad deploy. Now our site's on fire and it's on (laughs) fire for the next two days. They don't want to deal with that. Ops people don't want to deal with that. I provide a better experience to ops people by saying, okay, this is how we build a CI/CD pipeline. This is how we get our staging environment up so that when devs do things, it will light that on fire. And then we can find out why we can go back to them and say, don't do that. Or say, hmm, how can we solve this problem in a very useful way? And that turns into the decisions you've made aren't bad. Coming well back around to, oh, this code base is terrible. How can I ever do it to deal with that? (laughs) Right. One of the best things I've learned is to say and to accept and internalize that No code is bad because no choices were wrong. They were appropriate at the time they were made in the constraints that they were made under. And once I started to accept that, I could start saying to people, yeah, I understand and I sympathize that you don't like your code. Where do you want to be? How do we get there? And that's service. I'm commiserating with them because everyone is like, ah, why? But at the same time, they don't know how to get out of it. And I can provide that service. For me, I feel like it all comes back down to that idea that if you can approach your work 
from a place of respecting other people and where they came from and the constraints that they were under, then you can actually get so much more done. Uh, that calls back to something that I was thinking about earlier in the show, which is a, a cognitive bias uh, called actor-observer bias, um, which is this idea that when people judge their own behavior, and I'm reading from Wikipedia now, uh, and they're the actor, they're more likely to attribute their actions to the particular situation than to a generalization about their personality. And I, I think this ties in a little bit to uh, also to the um, fundamental attribution error, error. I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin. But knowing about that difference that we interpret stories about ourselves differently than we interpret stories about other people, if you know that difference and you can make yourself stay aware of that, then you can, I think, more easily access that place of empathy and try to figure out how to understand the context and the situation that somebody else uh, found themselves in that led to the code that you're seeing in front of you. Exactly. And this also comes down to, or comes in with um, the idea of blameless postmortems as part of the DevOps process and part of the better development processes of the person didn't fail if things fail and caught fire. The process around them failed. And even if you say this person brought the site down, the next question is, okay, what led that to happen? How were they able not to do right? that? Yeah. How were they able to do that? What choices were they making and why were they making them? Because the context is what matters, not that the person did it. And so I was at this conference over the weekend um, where we had a session about this. And the person running the session was a VP of engineering at a local um, payments processor where they try to get to, oh, I have a great quote for that. Hold on. Um, not going to find it uh, in reasonable time, so I will paraphrase it. Um, the quote is, of course that happened to them. It would have happened to anyone in that situation. Yeah. And trying to reach that point where they know that it wasn't that person's fault because anyone slotted into that slot would have done the same thing and failed in the same way. So they try to solve that problem. How do we fix that system? And I think that is a, a similar place of empathy. That is a similar place of service. Instead of lording your mastery of, oh, I wouldn't have done that, you're going, okay, yeah, we all would have done that. How do we fix that problem? How do we serve the people on the front lines so that they can act without worrying that they're going to wreck things in this bad way. Well, thank you. This, this has been a really uh, wonderful and interesting and engaging conversation. I feel like we could both talk about this stuff for hours longer, but uh, in the interests of respecting our listeners' time and uh, my own bladder capacity, I think perhaps we should wrap it up and move to the picks. Since there's only two of us, uh, traditionally the host goes before the guest. Uh, so I will just pick one thing, which is uh, that I recently this week uh, picked up a, uh, a Rode PSA-1 mic boom arm. This is uh, about 99 bucks on Amazon, and it's this thing that you can either clamp to your desk or you can drill a hole into your desk and, and set this in. And this is, uh, I don't know if it's considered studio quality, but it's quite nice. It's smooth and quiet. Uh, and it's this uh, boom arm that lets me position my mic pretty much anywhere that I want it. Um, and I can't believe that I suffered through using a mic's, uh, a floor stand for so very long. Uh, this thing is wonderful and it's already making my life better. Uh, that's it for my picks. Uh, how about you, Aaron? I think the most major pick I would have over the last like two weeks of my life is learning about design thinking. Um, and I highly recommend that you go and read the Wikipedia article on design thinking and start digging into the field of user experience because it is fascinating. 
All right. Well, awesome. So if people want to uh, follow you on Twitter or check out uh, other work that you're doing, uh, where can they find you? Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter as at Oren. Um, the spelling will be in the show notes. Um, you can also follow my blog at blog.oren.com, where I mostly talk about video games, um, but also I'm posting more about, more of my thoughts on things like Dominion culture and contempt culture. And if you're interested in that whole like DevOps business thing I do, you should ping me on Twitter, and I will tell you about it. Thank you very much. This has been a great episode. Great. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. All right. We'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. 